Okay, a um, couple things I wanted to share with you. Um, after the uh, pastor's conference, or the prophecy conference we just went to, and Pat McHenry, actually we did as well, we bought a couple books by uh, uh, this one speaker, his last name is Ka, and uh, C-A-H, right? K-A-H, I knew that, I was just testing. But anyway, uh, Patrick wrote this, put this thing together, and, and the, name, the title of it is, uh, We Are So Close. It's really good. And so there are copies on the table where the Days of Praise are, if you want to grab one. And um, also, um, our own Lance Hillier was sharing this with me, and it's a, a simple thing he has to share with people if uh, they don't know Jesus Christ. He talks about who God is, what rebellion is, and this place to put us. Jesus is atonement, he's Christ's atonement. And um, then uh, what conversion is, and also eternal life. And so these are also there. They're free. If you want to grab one uh, to maybe share with an unbelieving friend or just to encourage yourself. And they're out there uh, free on the table. Oh, that burnt. That was a joke. See, they're, they're, they're lent. Anyway, sorry. Sorry about that. Um, on the way in, hopefully all of you received a ballot. And uh, our bylaws require us to do this. And people might say, well, who can vote? Well, all the members can vote. Well, how do I know I'm a member? Is this where you're coming to church? If you're com- this is where you're coming to church, you're a member. We don't have membership classes, requirements, and things you sign because it's a weird thing. We don't find that in the Bible. And so, um, anyway, uh, the reason we did this is um, I love our church. In fact, I'm the founding pastor of the church, and therefore uh, I'm very concerned about what happens after I'm gone, you know, I had a heart attack in, in June, and, and so I never know when I literally might die or, or be incapacitated. And to make it easier for the church, because Pastor Frank is our associate pastor, he's a preaching pastor, and it's the intent of our church anyway, but in order to make it um, legal, we talked to our attorney, we have to have a church vote. And so what you do is you just check yes or no. In other words, what that is stating to you, that is, if anything happened to me, Frank would, Pastor Frank Jr. would automatically take right over as a senior pastor. And so you can fill it out. You can uh, hand it to Doug on the way out, or I think he has a basket. You can just put him in as well. But it's amazing because this is a special day to be voting on Pastor Frank. You know why? Today, this Sunday, he completes eight years of preaching ministry here and begins his ninth. Isn't that amazing? How time just just really flies. In fact, it's it's interesting. I was talking to um, a pastor friend of mine. We were talking in the phone, and he was asking me about having you know my son as associate pastor. And I told him, I said, uh, my son is probably the best preacher I've ever heard. And he said, that's quite a strong statement to make. And I said, well, I mean it. And I mean it. I really do mean it. I said, he is the best preacher I've ever heard. And, of course, that sounds very altruistic and humble on my part. But then I did tell him I was second. <laughs> so, anyway, we are in Exodus chapter 23. And, um, and I wanted to mention, too, that there's a sign-up for um, Secret Sisters. Um, Secret Sisters is awesome. I mean, I've never been a secret sister, but 
Uh, and if I was, that'd be... But anyway, um, it's for the women. And they pray for one another and they um, you know, are able to encourage one another throughout the whole time period. Then they have a final dinner where they um, you know, uh, exchange who their secret sister is. And it's quite a wonderful um, ministry that the Lord has brought into our church. We've been doing it for years now. So another Secret Sisters uh, group is starting, so make sure you sign up. And I think Jill Putman will be making an announcement in the second service about it. Okay, so we are in Exodus 23. Father in heaven, we thank you so much for all that you have done for us in procuring salvation. We've done nothing to add to it. You've done it all. And to know that simply by calling upon your name and asking you to forgive our sin and to come into our heart and to be the one that leads us from this day forward, we can be born again and we can escape all the judgment that's coming upon the world and upon lost souls. And so, Father, we ask that you would minister your word, your truth to each one who's here. And if there are any here, Lord, who are not born again, may this be the day of their salvation. And for those of us that are saved, I pray that this teaching would be an encouragement to us. And we give you thanks for all things in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. You know, Vi and I um, watched a, a, a movie Friday night. And what was the name of it again? Operation Finale. If you've never seen it, you really should. And it's the true story. And we actually watched the documentary afterwards, and, and the movie really follows the true account amazingly. And it's about the team of Mossad agents that went, their Israel Secret Service, that went into Argentina and captured Adolf Eichmann. Adolf Eichmann was the one who authored what was called the final solution and how to destroy all the Jews. And, uh, and it was just amazing because Vi and I were talking afterwards how after the war, the Allies made people in their communities walk through the, the camps and, and to see what the Jews had endured. You know, all the dead bodies and, and just so, so many things. And a lot of the people cried and, and, you know, felt awful about it. But we were thinking, you know, you did have men like Barnhoff, uh, Barnhoff and, and like that who stood up you know, against the, the Nazi regime, and they were thrown in jail and eventually hung themselves. But the reality is, by the time it got to the place where Jews were being arrested and thrown into these concentration camps, it was already too late. You know, the time that something needed to be done was way before that. And then it made me consider and think about what's going on in our world, in our country. And when you think about abortion... That's our Holocaust. These are children that are being slaughtered. And now in our state, you know, you you can be right up to birth. And you heard about that one governor in um, Virginia that was saying that after the baby's born, the parents can decide. And it's a Holocaust. But here's what we have to understand. Something should have been done long before this. It's almost like what was taking place in Germany. And so, therefore, we as Christians have a responsibility to do everything we can to help women who are pregnant and who are desperate in what to do. And so, for that reason, our fellowship is going to be really making a a very concerted effort to um, 
to actually sponsor and to help support New Hope Pregnancy Crisis Center. They're right in, in uh, Sacred Melodies Plaza. And what they do is they offer free testing and so forth, and they encourage these young women to keep their children and to do anything they can to help them through their pregnancy. And then usually these women will give children up for adoption. There are more people wanting to adopt a child than there are children being born. So it's not like there's any lack. And um, so if we're going to support New Hope Pregnancy Crisis Center, it's not just a matter of us being willing to give money. We have to be willing to maybe give of our own heart. Because consider this. What if there is a young woman who had no place to go and she needed some place to be while she went through this pregnancy and delivered the child? Would we be willing to take her in? You know, questions we need to ask ourselves. And also to be willing to give of our volunteer service, maybe even to give of our finances. And uh, so Patrick and, and Karen met, I think, Thursday with New Hope uh, Pregnancy this coming Thursday. And so maybe we can even make a time that one of them can come in and share uh, their ministry and, and uh, things that we can do to help. Because in this portion of Scripture, we're going to be looking at so many laws, you know, that seem impertinent to us. Oh, that doesn't relate to us. They seem so crazy, you know, you know, boiling the calf and its mother's milk and things like that. But as we go through it and look at the actual intent and meaning of these portions of Scripture, we're going to find they're just as relevant to us today as they were the children of Israel. And so we have to understand God has laid out his precepts for us because he loves us. Never for our harm, never to give us problems, but because he loves us and he knows as believers how we should live, as human beings how we should live, in order to have a right attitude towards God first and our fellow man. And so let's pray. <clears throat> Father, we come before you in Jesus' name and we thank you for your word and the way that it is able to speak to our hearts. And we ask that as we go through these portions of Exodus that you would use it to minister to us. Use it to encourage us. Use it, Lord, that we might be better servants of you, the living God. That we might make a difference in the world. We might not be able to change the world or even our government, but we can change the way we respond to those in need. We can change our own little world. And so now, Father, come by your Holy Spirit and minister your word and your truth to our hearts and souls, I pray in Jesus, Yeshua's name. Amen and amen. You know, when you read the laws that we're, we're covering in Exodus and then especially in Leviticus, we have to understand God gave the law not to make life hard for us, but for our own good. When people are living in, in a love for Jesus Christ, their life is so full of joy and peace and purpose. But the reality is, and we know this, God's law is perfect. That's what Scripture tells us in every way. But the reality is, while we're in the flesh, it is impossible for you and I to keep the law perfectly, right? We agree with that. But in our heart, we need to have that desire. And we need to seek after the Lord with every fiber of our being. We need to be willing to seek after him and to serve him. So we're picking up in Exodus 23 and verses 1 through 9. You shall not circulate a false report. Do not put your hand with the wicked to be an unrighteous witness. You shall not follow a crowd to do evil, nor shall you testify in a dispute 
as to turn aside after many to deny pervert to deny to, uh, to after many to pervert justice. You shall not show partiality to a poor man in his dispute. If you meet your enemy's ox or his donkey going astray, you shall surely bring it back to him again. If you see the donkey of one who hates you lying under his burden and you would refrain from helping it, you shall surely help him with it. You shall not pervert the judgment uh, of your poor in a dispute. Keep yourselves far from false matters. Do not kill the innocent and righteous, for I uh, will not justify the wicked. And you shall take no bribe, for a bribe blinds the discerning and perverts the words of the righteous. Also, you shall not oppress a stranger, for you know the heart of a stranger, because you are strangers in the land of Egypt. It's interesting because it's talking in the first part about gossiping. It should not, um, you know, circulate false reports. But one of the things you'll find as you study Scripture is that gossip and murmuring are oftentimes put together. You'll see the two put together, gossip and murmuring. And often they're coming from the same person and maybe at the same time that they're gossiping, they're also murmuring. And many wonder what the difference is. Well, the thing we have to understand is murmuring it actually destroys relationships. Well, you know, I don't know why they're doing this or that, and I wish they would do this and that. I wish, and, and, and then it causes just, you know, it breaks down relationships because usually you're murmuring about someone to someone else. Where gossip, it destroys people. In other words, you're saying things about someone that destroys them. And the Bible teaches us we're neither to murmur to break or come between relationships, or to gossip to break people down and to break down you know, their, their reputation with others. And so that's something that we have to, we must refrain, refrain from. And also it talks about not following the crowd. You know, sometimes it's easier to follow the crowd than to follow your conscience. You know, you really don't think something's right, but everybody else is all into that, and everyone else is doing it, and you just kind of go along with it. You know what I'm saying? But remember, it was the crowd who said, crucify him. That was the same crowd that just prior to that said, Hosanna to King David in the highest. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. See, a crowd can be very fickle. But you and I as believers are not to allow emotion and the sway of those around us to, you know, uh, influence how we would feel about things. So we have to understand that that same crowd who were crying out that Jesus was the Messiah, that's the same crowd that said crucify him because the emotion of the crowd had changed. Their attitude had changed. But you and I, we're not to change. This world has changed. The attitude, the political correctness of this world is really so ungodly, it's unbelievable. Do you know what I'm saying? And the thing people have to understand is that when we speak about, you know, transgender, we speak about homosexuality, and we speak about things like that, we're not speaking about people, hating people. We're talking about a lifestyle or a religion that is contrary to the Word of God. That's what we're speaking of. We're not thinking of any one individual. But the Bible makes it very clear that there's a distinction between men and women. For a reason. 
And now you can have your birth certificate changed where you have both the male and the female figure put on it so that you're whatever you want to be. But the reality is that their very own science denies what they're trying to do. Because if you test someone's DNA, they're male or female. You know, it's just ridiculous. And so we have to realize it's not just in the case of sex identity, but it's also a case in our identity with the Lord. We can't be either way. Either we are for him, Scripture says, or what, is it, what does Scripture tell us if we're not for him? We're against him. See, there's, there's no uh, middle ground there. And so we have to take a stand. We're for Jesus because his word is so true. Now, the reason people so often, you know, show partiality is because they're more concerned about the approval of men than they are the approval of God. I want people to like me. I want people to think I'm part of the group rather than the approval of God. Now, I realize that there are times that it might be um, probably more beneficial to be quiet. You know, maybe you're in a, um, a group of a bunch of people that are, you know, just into all this radical stuff and, uh, you know, completely speaking contrary to the Word of God. That might not be the time to say anything. But maybe when you're with some of the people that were at that gathering or you're in a smaller group, you can the thing is, is to know the leading of the Holy Spirit. And there might be a time that you stand up and say, no, this is wrong. And there might be a time that the Lord wants you to take a small group aside or to talk to some of your friends and say, this is wrong. And, and use this false testimony that you're hearing as a, a springboard to share the truth with them. That they might realize that the way of this world is not the way of God. And um, I'm sorry, I have my left eye... It's all watery, and I'm having a hard time seeing. Anyway, the disciples, um, let me put my glasses on so I can read them. Showing partiality, this displeases the Lord. Uh, for one reason, what we read in Romans uh, chapter 5 and um, verse 8, and it tells us, in, in fact, verses 8 through 10, I'm not going to read it, but it, it tells us that God demonstrates demonstrated his love towards us while we're still his enemies, right? While we're his enemies, he, he displayed his love towards us that we might become his friends or to be born again, to become his children. And so in the same way, we can't look at people that disagree with us and think of them, they're my enemies. I hope fire comes down from heaven and consumes them. I can't wait till the giant locusts attack. You know, you start having that kind of an attitude, it's a wrong attitude. We have to look at those just the way Jesus saw us as his enemies and say, I desire to share the truth with them. I want them to become with me in Christ. I want them to become comrades in arms for the Lord. I want them to be part of the church of the kingdom of God. That's the attitude that we need to have. Because we're called to do what is unnatural. In Romans 12 and verses uh, 20 through 21 of Romans 12, on the contrary... Listen to this. If your enemy is hungry, feed him. That's not natural for us, okay? Um, if he is thirsty, give him something to drink. Listen to this. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. Now, a lot of people say, yeah. 
I'm going to do nice to my enemy just so burning coals comes on his head and he feels lousy. Yeah. Well, if that's your attitude, you have a completely wrong attitude. You don't understand this portion of Scripture. It's talking about the fact if we repay evil with kindness, with good, conviction of the Lord will fall upon the person's head. And they'll be thinking, what am I doing? Look at how he or she is treating me. What an idiot I am. And I need to make a change in my life. Because the Lord always desires to bring us to a place of uh, repentance and everyone we have contact with to the same repentance. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Listen to what it tells us in Proverbs 24, verses 17 through 18. Do not gloat when your enemy falls, when he stumbles, and do not let your heart rejoice, or the Lord will see you and disapprove. Or the Lord will see you and disapprove. In Matthew 5, verses, uh, verse 44, But I say to you, love your enemies, bless those who curse you, and do good to those who hate you, and pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you. Well, that's not easy. That's not normal. It's not rational in our minds, but it's God's plan for us. It's God's attitude. It's God's, you know, emotion coming through us, being filled with the Holy Spirit. We should be emoting, you know, the love of God to those around us. And it's an amazing thing. When people are mean to you, they expect you to be mean back. But when people are mean to you and you don't respond in like manner, what a blessing it is. Now understand this, because this is important. Sometimes we think we need to have immediate uh, reward. So let's say sometime during this week you have someone who's really mean to you. And you turn around and you're really nice to them. And you're thinking, oh boy, I'm really doing God's will. Things are going to turn out great. The person's going to come to me and repent and we're going to be good buddies. And the person turns around and he's worse to you. You know what you do? You continue to be nice to him. You continue to show love. I remember when uh, um, I first got saved and I was teaching at... Uh, science at Horseheads High School in Horseheads, New York, and if you know where that is. And uh, there was this other biology teacher there, big guy, and he was a new ager from top to bottom. And um, after I got saved, now this is going to surprise many of you too, back in those days we had segregated faculty rooms. The men had their own faculty room, and the women had their own faculty room. They did not come into the same faculty room. They, they were separate. That was their oh, big thing. So anyway, it was a men's faculty room, and when I would walk into the faculty room, I was, almost said the guy's name, but he might still be alive, so I better not. And I walked in the faculty room, and this guy used to go when he'd see me, praise the Lord, oh, praise the Lord. And he did that to me so many times. And I know you probably think I'm not like my son, and I'm not in, in quite as volatile, but anyway, um, things kind of build up in me, and one time I walked in there and having a bad day anyway, and he's going, praise the Lord, and I grabbed him, and I threw him down over the factory room table, and I had my hand co- cocked. I mean, I was ready, I was ready to go, and then I just felt bad, and I walked away, and so I went back to my room, and I really felt like the Lord's conviction coming upon me. You know, we're supposed to repay you know, evil with kindness and stuff. 
So I went into the factory room and I told him, I said, look, I'm so sorry. What I did was wrong. I let my temper take a hold of me. Please forgive me. And he told me what I could do with myself. The point I'm getting at is you're not always going to get a good response back. But you know what? That's okay. Because one of the things this guy knows is that I changed being a, being a believer. He'll, he, he knew that I came back and apologized. That's always going to be there with him. And so I'm sharing that with you because sometimes when you repay you know, evil with kindness, it doesn't mean you're going to have some kind of an immediate reward. You might not have any reward that you notice at all. But believe me, it's working in the hearts of people. <clears throat> now also... In this portion, uh, it tells us we are also commanded to not show favoritism or, or do wrong for either one or another, one way or another. And it's interesting because if you look at verse 3 closely, it's telling you not to show favoritism towards a poor man. And then if you look at verse 6 closely, it's telling you not to show favoritism towards a rich man. You might be thinking, well, how can that be? Well, it's very easy. You have some people that they just feel so wonderful. They're just so holy. They're just so, uh, you know, just awesome people. And so they want to show that by being so benevolent and kind to the poor man. But they're doing it for their own reasons, for their own pride. And then you have the other side where you have someone who, you know, oh, I want to show favoritism towards this wealthy person because he's prominent and he might add to my, my stature and he maybe even give me some money. You know, and you just start showing that, and that's wrong as well. We don't show favoritism for any reason. In James, in chapter 2, verses 2 through 4, he gives an example of this. He said if you're in church, in a meeting, and a poor guy comes in, doesn't have much, he's dressed shabby, Read that portion. This is what it's telling us. And you say to him, you know what? Sit over here on the floor. But some rich guy comes in, and he's all dressed you know, beautifully and you know, in, in all kinds of majestic ways about him, and he walks in, and you say, oh, you, here, take the prominent seat. He said, haven't you not shown favoritism? Have you not shown partiality? And he calls it out as sin. So we have to be careful. We don't work one way or another. Well, how do you make sure that you don't lean this way or that way? Don't lean at all. That's how you do it. Just look to Jesus. Treat everyone the same. It shouldn't make any difference what anyone's background is. Treat everyone the same. You know, it's going to sound silly to you, but I'm short. I know you've never noticed. And the reality is, you might think, what's the big deal? And it's not really a big deal because God gives me all kinds of grace and so forth. But you experience a lot of uh, comments and prejudice and things like that because you're short. I don't know how many times when I was in college and uh, they'd say, hey, Frank, why don't you stand up? You know, of course I was. And, uh, you know, things, things like that. You know, <laughs> but I did. I, I would hear, you know, or, or, or someone who, you know, you'd have, like when I, I played football. And you'd have this guy come out, and he'd be, you know, six foot four and, and you know, weigh 200, you know, 20, 30 pounds back in those days. And I come walking out with all five foot seven. That's what I always put down. It was actually five, six and a half. And I come out with my five, six and a half and, you know, and, and this and that. And the, the big guy would always get first choice. Always get first choice. Of course, I could take him. But the, the, point, the point is, 
you have that kind of favoritism shown. And it's true. We literally, as believers, should have blinders. Not looking at anyone's looks, not looking at anyone's social economic you know, uh, status, not looking at anyone's physical stature, high, you know, short, whatever it might be, but just looking at everyone the same. That's why I love the story of Zacchaeus. The wee little man, you know, the little son. And Zacchaeus was a short little guy, and he wanted to see Jesus. He was a tax collector. Everyone hated him. And because he was short, he had to climb up in a sycamore tree in order to be able to see Jesus passing by. It's a neat, it's a wonderful story. It's a beautiful story. Because Jesus saw Zacchaeus up in the tree, and he said, Zacchaeus, come down from that tree. I'm having dinner with you today. So he took this guy who was not only short in stature, but hated by the people because he was a tax collector, and Jesus lifted him up. And Zacchaeus that said, I will give back ten times what I've taken wrongly from anyone. He had a real repentant heart, and that's what it's all about. That's what the ministry is all about. And also, we have to be careful not to judge, to act, or follow simply because we want the approval of others. You know, one of the things that's been probably uh, more damaging to the church than anything else is um, pastors being put in a place where the congregation is his boss. Okay? Because what happens is then the pastor ends up trying to preach and teach in such a way that it pleases the people. I want to please the people. I want to please the leaders in the church so that they like me and so I continue on in my position. And that's the reason a lot of the lukewarm gospel that we have and the lukewarm teaching that we have in the church today is for that reason. Or... They're all into the church growth movement, and the next thing you know, their church has 2,000 people. Well, you know what a a church that has 2,000 people also has? A big debt load. They're paying for a big building. They're paying for a big staff. And so the pastor's thinking, now, understand, there's exceptions to every rule. There are a lot of big churches that are awesome, that are wonderful. I'm not saying that. I'm just saying what often happens, though. So you have this big church, this big debt load, and the pastor's thinking, I need to keep the people in. I need to keep the finances coming. And so if he preaches a certain message, even though it's right from the Bible, and there are a lot of people that don't like it and and give him a hard time, and I'm leaving the church and all this kind of stuff, he starts relenting. But the reality is what we have to understand in any Bible-believing church, the head of the church is Almighty God. The head of our church here at Brian Calvert Chapel is Jesus Christ. Not Frank Thomas, it's Jesus Christ. And my only responsibility is to submit to him in serving you. I am your minister. Do you know what the word minister means? Servant. Boy, you said that real quick and loud, brother. <laughs> you're right, you're right, you're, you're right. I'm, I'm teasing. I'm, I am your servant. I'm your servant. And my wife always says to me, know how you can tell when someone is a true servant? And you, you say, well, how? When they, uh, when they, how, how do you tell someone's a true servant? Is how they act when someone treats them like one. You know what I'm saying? It's real easy for me to feel like a servant. <laughs> and then someone says to me, hey, Pastor, you want to do this? We really need to get... <laughs> and... We're servants. We're servants of the Lord and servants of one another. 
Then in verses 10 through 13, six years you shall sow your land and gather in its produce. But in the seventh year you shall let it rest and lie fallow that the poor of your people may eat. Now, what the law was, when we get into Leviticus and, and, and Numbers, we'll see a little bit more of this. When you harvested your field, if you were a wealthy man in your own a field, when you harvested, you had to leave the edge of the fields uncut. And that was for the poor. It was called the gleaning of the field. They would come in and they would glean the field. So the poor would have food. It was like their welfare pro- program in a sense. And if you read the story of Ruth and, you know, and Boaz, you know this. This is, this is in it. But then in the fallow year, the seventh year that the land was to be left fallow, you still would have crops that would grow up, even though it wasn't seeded or planted. And that was just for the poor. The poor could come in and gather, and they could store food, you know, maybe for the coming years and so forth, but also for the beasts of the field. The animals, you know, could come in and eat as well. God is just so awesome. And what they leave, the beasts of the field may eat. In like manner, you shall do with your vineyard and your olive groves. Do it with them as well. Six days you shall do your work, and on the seventh day you shall rest, that your ox and your donkey may rest, and the son of your female servant and the stranger be refreshed. And in all that I have said to you, be circumspect, and make no mention of the name of other gods, nor let it be heard from your mouth. Now, it's interesting, for 490 years after God brought the children of Israel into their land, for 490 years, they failed to keep this command to let the, let the, the fields rest every seventh year. And so, after 490 years, they owed God how many sabbatical rests for their land? Seventy. And God sent them into Babylonian captivity for 70 years. They were unwilling to do it, and God made it happen. Now, we have to realize, just because God doesn't seem to show his justice and disapproval you know, in administering correction to us right off, it doesn't mean he's not paying attention. I'm sure for 490 years, people are saying, hey, we've been doing this forever. God doesn't really care. But then the, the time came for him to administer justice to the people. And um, in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9, it says, The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some count slackness, but is long-suffering towards us, not willing that any should perish, but all should come to repentance. And so the Lord holding off isn't because... He doesn't care or because he doesn't, he's not intending to administer justice. He would rather have us repent. And here's the thing you have to understand. If you have some area of your life that you know that you're out of keeping with God in, you know it in your heart, and you haven't felt God's correction yet, you haven't felt God's discipline falling on you, repent. You still have time. Because if you repent, it won't come. Isn't that awesome? I mean, I believe with all my heart if the children of Israel, after 489 years, you know, if they would have let the, the uh, field go fallow, you know, just let it rest for a year, probably they would have averted their 70 years of captivity. But they didn't. They had a heart that had no intention of repenting. And so we have to realize that God's slowness is for us to repent. The reality is this, brothers and sisters, 
we fall to sin. It would be wonderful to say, well, you know, back in 1972 when I gave my life to Jesus Christ, it was the most wonderful day in my life because from that time on, I've never fallen to sin. I've never committed any sin. I'm perfect. But guess what? That would be a huge lie because we're not. We're to take up our cross daily, it tells us, and follow Jesus. That means every day we have to die to self. Every day it's a struggle with this world. And every, you know, how many of you can agree with this? I know every one of you could raise your hand. How many of you can agree with this? You wake up and everything seems perfect. The sky's blue, the birds are singing, you know, everything's going great in your house, everything's wonderful. You think, what a great day this is going to be. And then you go out into the world and into your life, and it's like, <laughs> and you're like, <laughs> well, the thing is, we need to respond as we're being told here, following the Lord. We're, you know, we're, we're to give kindness for evil that's poured upon us so that they might be convicted, so that they might come to know Jesus as well. So anyway, uh, God's justice will always come about. And just because we don't see the Lord's justice right away, just like we read here in Peter, it doesn't mean that he doesn't see, and it doesn't mean he's not going to administer. He simply loves us so much, he wants to give us time to repent. I mean, what an awful thing it would be if a parent gave a a child one chance. You have one chance. And if you don't do it, there's no repentance. How awful would that be? Can you imagine, you know, my silly analogy that I use all the time. Can you imagine if you're teaching your son or your daughter how to hit a a baseball or a softball, and they're standing up to to bat there, and you throw the baseball, and they swing and miss, and you walk up to them, and you push them on the ground, and you take the bat and the ball, and say, that's it, we're done. Well, not only have we shown great meanness, But also, we have prevented that child from learning how to hit the ball. But we say to that child, okay, good swing. Man, that was the best swing and miss I've ever seen. Now, here's what you have to do. I'm going to give you more instruction. Keep your eye on the ball. Make sure you have the proper stance. And when the ball comes, make sure you come right out to meet it. And you do it ten times and the child misses. And then one time you throw it and the child hits the ball, and you're like, yeah. That's how the Lord is with us. He's not like, okay, you messed up, you're done. He's saying, swing again. It's only when we stop swinging that we have a problem. And so when we find ourselves lying flat on our our face, pick yourself up and get back in the race, that's life. That's an old Frank Sinatra song, by the way. Anyway, um, when we find ourselves on our face, get back up. Follow Jesus. You don't have to go back to the beginning. Follow Jesus. That's the love of God. And we must remember, like it tells us in Mark 2, 27, it says, And he said to them, The Sabbath was made for man and not man for the Sabbath. So when he's talking about people keeping the Sabbath, it wasn't a matter of them, you know, you better obey the law. This is a gift for me, God is saying. This is the day you can rest. This is the day you don't have to go out and labor. And and your animals and your servants, they don't have to go out and labor. It's a day that you can all be refreshed. It's a wonderful day. It's a gift for me. Then the Pharisees turned around and made it into a burden to the people. You know, you've heard probably Pastor Frank Jr. and I say the same thing. 
Do you know that you couldn't spit on the Sabbath? Because if you did, your spit could roll on the ground, and it was considered making a furrow in the ground. And so that was considered a sin. If you had a crutch or an artificial leg, you couldn't use it on the Sabbath. It was considered work. So they went and they took a beautiful gift from God and they made it into a burden. And that's how it is so often. The Lord gives us these beautiful gifts and we wrap all kinds of junk around it thinking we're making it better. Let's just receive it as it is. Just like the Holy Spirit. He, the Holy Spirit, is God who comes to dwell in the cardia, the heart of all men who love him and who empowers us and guides us and directs us. How awesome is the gift of the Holy Spirit? And then we turn around and say, well, if you're filled with the Holy Spirit, you have to do this, you have to do that. And also, if you're going to have the Holy Spirit, you have to realize, da, 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 da. And you need to read these 10 books, and you have to follow the 20 steps of... And we just start defacing this beautiful gift of God. Just take the gift that God gives you and receive it. It's an amazing thing. And, um, you know, finishing up here, let's move on. Well, another thing I just wanted to mention before we, we finish this, when he talks about no other gods, God is a jealous God. He tells us that how many times in Scripture. He's a jealous God. Now, he's not jealous in the sense that he's mean. He's jealous in the sense that he desires the best for us. You know, you're jealous for your children in the sense that you don't want them to do things that are harmful. You want them to do things that are good for them. Well, God is a jealous God. He wants the best for us. You know, in Deuteronomy 12, 3 through 4, and it says, Break down their altars, smash their sacred stones, and burn their Asherah poles in the fire. Cut down the idols of their gods and wipe uh, out the names from those places. You must not worship the Lord your God in their way. And we have to remember that. You know, we can't worship God with our own theologies and so forth. He's a jealous God. We have to worship him in the way that we're commanded according to to the scriptures. And then in verses 14 through 19, three times you shall keep a feast to me in, in the year. You shall keep the feast of unleavened bread. You shall not eat leavened bread seven days as I commanded you at the time appointed in the month of Abid. Uh, for in it you came out of Egypt. None shall appear before me empty. And the feast of harvest, the first fruits of your labors, which you have sown in the field, and the feast of ingathering at the end of the year when you have gathered in the fruit of your labor from the field. Three times in the year, all of your males shall appear before the, uh, before the Lord God. You shall not offer the blood of my sacrifice with leavened bread. Leaven always represented sin. In other words, you don't come and say, I'm worshiping the Lord, I'm sacrificing to the Lord. And you've got sin in your heart. Um, Nor shall uh, the fat of my sacrifice remain until morning. It's referring to the Passover lamb. And they were supposed to be consumed that night. Jesus does not come in parts. He comes as a whole. And so once you've received Jesus, you've received Jesus. You should receive all of him. And... um, the first of the first fruits of your land shall bring, uh, uh, you shall bring into the house of the Lord your God. He deserves our best. And you shall not boil a young goat in its mother's milk. And a lot of people look at that and they think, what in the world is that talking about? It was actually a pagan practice of the Canaanites, the land that they came into. 
that at the time of ingathering, time of harvest, what they would do is they would take, a, you know, a baby calf, boil it in its mother's milk, then they would take the milk and sprinkle it on the land, and it was uh, supposed to give them a greater harvest the next year. It was a pagan practice. That's why he's telling them not to do that. And uh, these three feasts that are mentioned here ended up becoming what we call the Feast of Passover, Pentecost, and Tabernacles. Now, the Feast of Passover was fulfilled by Jesus in his crucifixion. The Feast of Pentecost in the coming of the Holy Spirit to abide in the hearts of man. And many think the Feast of Tabernacles will be fulfilled when Jesus comes to earth and tabernacles among us. Tabernacles among us when he lives here on earth. And, of course, there's also the Feast of Trumpets. And there are those who feel the Feast of Trumpets will be at the time of the rapture. The last trump, dead in Christ, we rise first. We who are left and still alive shall be caught up together to meet the Lord in the air. And in Corinthians, it's the same thing, at the trumpet of God. And so we have to realize that we're living in times that are so awesome. Jesus literally could come back from us before we leave the service. Wouldn't that be great? But the reality is, until that day that the, G, that the Lord Jesus takes us out of this world, we have to be obedient to his word. Study his word. Be encouraged in it. I mean, can you imagine if you had a college student and they went up to their professor and said, I just want you to know, I really am excited to be part of this class, but I have no intention of reading the textbook. I have no intention of doing any of the homework or taking any of your tests. I just want a good grade. The professor would say, you're insane. And yet, there are many people who say, well, I just want to be part of the kingdom of God. I have no intention of reading the Bible. I have no intention of doing the things, the work the Lord wants me to do. I have no intention of believing any of it. But I want to be part of the kingdom of God. To be part of the kingdom of God is a free gift to anyone who receives it. And we have to understand that we're living in a time where it's so easy to fall into idolatry and false worship. We need to keep our focus on the Lord and on the Lord alone. Father, we come before you in Jesus' name and we thank you so much for this portion of Scripture and for the way it's able to speak to our hearts. I pray your blessing upon each one here, upon this fellowship, and may your name be glorified always and praised from our lips, I ask in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. God bless you, my friends.